2: We see early newsreel footage of the Edwardian era and it's men in silk-top hats and frock coats and women in beautiful dresses and, and, and hats about four feet wide and walking along with their parasols and going to garden parties. And uh, and, and life seems to be very luxurious and wonderful. And it was luxurious and wonderful for them. Uh, it wasn't quite the same for most of the, of the population.
3: That was Simon Heffer talking to us about Britain at the turn of the 20th century.
0: You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe Or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store.
3: Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. Our interview today is with Simon Heffer, a journalist and historian who has written several books on 19th and 20th century Britain. His latest is The Age of Decadence, which explores the sweeping changes that overtook the country in the late Victorian and Edwardian eras. And this was the subject of his conversation with our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans.
4: Your book, The Age of Decadence, considers Britain in the period between 1880 and 1914, a period which for many people might be characterised by um, opulence, by by the vast wealth. Yet you explore in your book how this was underpinned also by great social unrest, both in Britain and throughout the empire. Um, Perhaps you could introduce us to a few of the accounts of the opulent, um, the great wealth that characterised the ruling few.
2: Well, it it was an opulence that was... Um, spreading down to a new class because it was a middle class who in the mid-19th century had started uh, industrial concerns, particularly in the north of England, and who by the late 19th century were big employers, were living in semi-stately homes, uh, and uh, were living off the fat of the land. Uh, The old aristocracy was quite on its uppers by the late 19th century because there was a massive agricultural depression in Britain from about 1873. And they owned they owned most of the land and their income was from land. It was from agriculture and farming. One or two of them were quite fortunate and had huge uh, seams of coal under their estates, uh, again, particularly in the north, uh, and their wealth was unaffected. But for most of the aristocracy in the late 19th century, they were living off capital rather than off income. Whereas, Um, A lot of the new middle classes, the people who had been uh, wool barons or cotton barons uh, or or industrialist engineers uh, in the north of England, were were, were living off their their dividends. And um, they were living, of course, so well, uh, those people, because they didn't pay a great deal of money to the people who worked for them, both men and women. Women, of course, were paid even less than men. There was no equal pay in those days. They employed children from about the age of 12, school leaving age. I think it was raised to 12 in 1902, and um, uh, children went in and earned very little money, but it was money that was important to keep their, uh, themselves fed in their families. And so there was this enormous gap between those who were uh, living off the, uh, if you like, the, the proceeds of the labour of a vast working class. And, the, and those who were living off the, uh, the land that they'd inherited for centuries. And uh, a vast mass of people, getting on 40 million or so people, uh, who were either lower middle class or working class, and uh, were earning uh, either low wages or, or very little pay indeed as, as, as farm workers. So um, there was a big chasm uh, between uh, the rich and the poor. There was quite a small middle class, although it got bigger during this period. And um, there, was, there was no welfare state of any sort until about 1911. So there was a very big gap between the rich and the poor, and that's what caused the social unrest.
4: And the term that you use in your book, in the introduction to your book, is um, swagger to describe the, um, the wealth that was experienced by this very small minority of, of the population. Um, could you give a few examples of, of the excess of the opulence that we would have seen at this time?
2: Well, the old aristocracy lived in big stately homes, and they had huge numbers of servants. Anyone who's watched Downton Abbey will, will be aware of that. Um, they, uh, they had their portraits painted. The, the Swagger portrait is famous for depicting members of the British aristocracy uh, in their fineries, uh, women in beautiful dresses and jewels, uh, men uh, dressed in uh, uh, their, their, their hunting costumes or their, uh, their white tie and tails. Uh, and the people who were at the top of the tree uh, took extensive holidays. They went abroad to the Riviera um, for much of the summer. Um, they came home and spent from August until uh, the end of January shooting first grass, then partridge, then pheasant. They rode to hounds uh, in many cases. Uh, I mean, they, they had lives of ease. Uh, people who were titled aristocrats, the people who had peerages, Uh, might attend the House of Lords and some of them might might get involved in governing the country. But uh, for an awful lot of people at that end who had lived off agricultural wealth, if you like, for generations, um, it was a life not entirely of idleness because many of them, uh, particularly the younger sons who weren't going to inherit, went and found uh, something to do, whether it was serving as officers in the army or perhaps uh, towards the end of the 19th century going and working in quite smart firms in the city of London. But um, it was nothing like the sort of existence that those people have today. And uh, they owned, I mean, there were were a very small number of families, possibly about a 1,000 families, who owned 90% of the land in the country. Uh, And uh, so they had an immense income, even in the time of agricultural depression, from that. And then there's this new middle class who, uh, I say, have made their money from from trade and from uh, from um, uh, manufacturing, and they all they they either buy stately homes that have fallen into disrepair um, from old aristocrats, or they build their own. You've got this great building of Victorian country houses goes on after about 1870. Uh, and again, like the old aristocrats, they employ a lot of people. They have lots of servants. Um, they take up some of the aristocratic pursuits not least, shooting and hunting Uh, and um, they start living off their dividends. What they don't do, and this is a cause of great strife with their workers, they don't tend to reinvest the money that they make into modernizing their plant and perhaps making life easier for the workers. They much prefer to live off it uh, and to go on long holidays and to build bigger houses and to enjoy themselves. And uh, dividends go up quite a lot in the first 10 years of the 20th century. Uh, but real wages don't increase at all. And this causes deep unhappiness. And it's, again, one of the causes of, the, of what became known as the great unrest of 1910 to 1912, when working-class people suddenly said, well, we've had enough of this. We've had enough of watching them enjoy themselves, uh, while we are left with our noses to the proverbial grindstone. And, you know, the, we see... Um, early newsreel footage of the Edwardian era, and it's men in silk top hats and frock coats and women in beautiful dresses and and hats about four feet wide, and walking along with their parasols and going to garden parties. and uh, and, and Life seems to be very luxurious and wonderful, and it was luxurious and wonderful for them. Uh, It wasn't quite the same for most of of the population. There was a growing middle class who were um, having nicer houses, and you know, if you go to any uh, town in Britain today, the outer suburbs uh, have got uh, rather nice Edwardian and Victorian villas, and these were built for these people. And the cinema came along, and the gramophone, and they started to go to football matches and cricket matches on Saturday afternoons, and they started to have something approaching uh, leisure time and the money to enjoy leisure. But there was still below them an enormous working class that didn't have that disposable income and didn't have that opportunity to go and, and have recreation. And again, this is the, the reason for the, the, the sense of disillusion with their betters. And it's why what had always been an age of deference comes to an end.
4: Um, you mentioned cricket, and I really enjoyed the section um, on cricket in your book. Perhaps you could talk a little bit about how that sport captured the national imagination at this time.
2: I know we live in an age now where, where cricket, in terms of played over three or four days, has become very boring. Everybody wants to watch cricket matches that last half an hour. But uh, in these days, um, there were rock star like cricketers such as WG Grace and CB Fry and Prince Ranjit Sinji and others, who um, captured the public imagination in a way that probably no cricketers have done in the last 50 or 60 years. And uh, cricket became uh, an organized sport, if you like, in terms of having a county championship, Um, initially from 1873, then it was reconstituted in 1890. And uh, on Saturdays, people would flood into cricket grounds and, and watch cricket. Uh, and, indeed, uh, many people didn't have to work, uh, who lived on private incomes, would, would go there on the other uh, five days of the working week. Uh, cricket wasn't played on Sundays at a uh, professional level. And uh, newspapers, which were also becoming popular at the time uh, and having a wider audience and wider readership, uh, would write about these cricketers and uh, uh, lionize them and say how brilliant they were. Um, and, of course, there was this social divide, rather as you have in society between gentlemen and players. You had professional cricketers who uh, were paid to play, and they were usually captains and led by uh, amateurs, some of whom were genuinely amateurs, uh, many of whom were shamateurs. They uh, claimed not to be paid, but people like W.G. Grace found private sponsors who who bankrolled and paid them great amounts of money to play cricket professionally. And um, at the in the last part of the uh, 19th century and through the Gordian period until the Great War, uh, professional cricket was enormously popular I and mean, it was much more popular, really, nationally than soccer, which had also organised itself in the 1870s and 80s as a professional sport, and also than rugby league, which had started in the 1890s. And although they had their followings, nothing quite captured the national imagination as opposed to the regional imagination because soccer and rugby league were very much northern sports until the Great War, um, as cricket did. And um, the whole nation would follow test matches. uh, And obviously there was no television or radio in those days, but when the England team went abroad, uh, the evening papers would have scores telegraphed back to them. And people would anxiously await um, the lunchtime editions of newspapers to hear how England had done the previous night in Australia. And there was this great sensation in 1894, 95, when the team led by A. Stoddart won the Ashes, and uh, the whole of England every lunchtime during that winter hung on the on the news as the evening papers uh, arrived to see how the how the team had done, and um, it was it was something that actually united society because it wasn't just that the players were from all social classes, the people who watched cricket uh, tended to be from all social classes as well, and uh, in a way that. People who watched football and rugby league tended to be working class people like the people who were playing it. So uh, it had a great, it, it embraced the nation in those 25 or so years before the Great War um, with its great celebrity players in a way that it probably never has done since.
4: In your book, one factor which you investigate as well is um, this sudden rise in the perceived immorality of that ruling class, which is. Which, um, causes many to become disenchanted with this idea of, of the few um, as exalted. Um, for example, the Prince of Wales, the future Edward VII, um, and Lord Arthur Somerset. Would you be able to talk a bit about those scandals and how they affected the perception of the ruling class?
2: Yes, I mean, there was this idea, and it was embodied not least by Queen Victoria herself, um, who thought that those at the top of the tree should set an example to those further down. And um, she had an obviously immaculate family life. She had a husband whom she loved and by whose death she was devastated. Uh, In 1861 with whom she had nine children. And her eldest son, the heir to the throne, uh, was to her an enormous disappointment. He married a very beautiful woman when he was still in his early 20s, uh, got bored with her, started to have mistresses uh, all over London and indeed further afield than that. And did other things that she found deeply, deeply, deeply disappointing. Um, it was illegal to play a card game called Baccarat at the time. Uh, and he started to play it in country houses uh, for huge stakes of money. And someone in a game he was playing in 1890 cheated in the game, allegedly, um, and was banned from playing cards by his friends. Uh, word got out and he sued and he called the Prince of Wales as uh, a witness, and uh, he, lost his, he lost his case. But it was hugely embarrassing for the Prince of Wales and disgusted Queen Victoria that her son and heir had been called to give evidence in a defamation case um, that was about an illegal card game. Um, and it, it was lavishly reported by the newspapers, um, most of whom found it very amusing, because the Prince of Wales wasn't that popular, that this man who was supposed to be setting a great example to society um, was was doing all this. They never wrote about his very irregular sex life because that would have been too shocking, I think, for their readers. but they they seized the opportunity to write about his gambling. Uh, and they often wrote about his other excesses. he He lived largely off his friends. He would travel around England, staying in other people's houses, uh, enjoying their hospitality, taking with him an enormous retinue of people. and some of his some of his friends were bankrupted by this. Uh, But he saw no harm in it and was immensely self-indulgent, I say financially, sexually, morally, in every way you want. Um, The other great scandal of the time uh, was, as you say, Lord Arthur Somerset, who uh, was the younger son of the Duke of Beaufort and who started to patronize a male brothel in Cleveland Street in London and uh, was at the centre of what became known as the Cleveland Street Scandal in 1889. Um, he had a particular desire for young boys who worked for the post office, their telegram boys, whose blue and red uniform he found rather attractive and thought the boys who wore this were particularly desirable. And um, he managed to get some of these boys shipped into this brothel for his, um, his own purposes. And um, to complicate matters further, Lord Arthur was uh, in a very smart guards regiment in the army, uh, and he was also the Prince of Wales's racing manager. Uh, and so when this scandal came to the attention, first of Scotland Yard and then of the Prime Minister, Lord Salisbury, um, there was huge embarrassment because if Lord Arthur Somerset went down, he took down several other institutions with him. Uh, the, the, the detectives at Scotland Yard tried to explain this to his regiment, uh, to his commanding officer, who eventually believed it and told Somerset to get out of the country, because, of course, we must remember that homosexuality was illegal then, and it was it was quite severely punished. Uh, and the Prince of Wales was told by his private secretaries. And the Prince of Wales' his first reaction was simply not to believe it. He couldn't bring himself to believe it. Uh, but Somerset had done this. Uh, he took his commanding officer's advice and fled the country. He was also tipped off to do that, incidentally, by Lord Salisbury, um, which I reveal in the book. Um, Salisbury met uh, one of his uh, uh, spokespeople, as it were, one of his uh, solicitors, and um, passed the word on that he couldn't keep Scotland Yard off his back forever. And uh, Somerset went to France, where he lived for the next 37 years and died in 1926. Uh, But again, it was, I think, largely kept from Queen Victoria, but the rest of high society knew about it. And uh, it huge embarrassment to the Prince of Wales. The other problem was that one of the people who was also alleged to be using this brothel in Cleveland Street was the Prince of Wales's son and heir, Prince Eddie, uh, who was uh, would have been our king had he not died two years later of flu. Uh, he would have succeeded Edward Seventh instead of George Fifth, his younger brother. And um, when uh, that royal household was told about Prince Eddie, they went to enormous lengths to try to cover up uh, any engagement with the brothel or with Cleveland Street. I must say it isn't proven that Prince Eddie had anything to do with this brothel. And um, I, I made extensive researches and couldn't find any proof of it. But um, it was a threat used by one of the people who was involved uh, and indeed, uh, hinted at by Lord Arthur Somerset that he would bring down Prince Eddie if he was persecuted. He would say that he that there was a connection with the royal family. So there, there was a lot of... Sexual scandal going on at the top end of society. There was another one with a, a Tory, a, uh, sorry, a Liberal MP called Sir Charles Dilke, um, who uh, got in serious trouble uh, by having a three in a bed uh, in sometime in the mid 1880s. And that all came out in court as well. So the, the high morals that we think of from the mid Victorian period uh, and high morals that were enforced or supposed to be enforced by the ruling class and slavishly followed by everybody else in society, particularly the aspirational middle class who, for whom respectability was the key thing that they sought to achieve, um, this all became a bit of a joke.
4: If we could talk a little about um, empire, Uh, you write in your book that the decades before the Great War would mark um, the zenith of the British Empire, certainly in terms of power and influence, if not in territory. And you pinpoint the key uh, moment of the Second Boer War as shaking shaking popular opinion in the empire. Could you talk a little bit about, about that?
2: Well, by the late 1890s, Britain was meant to be not just the world's greatest imperial power, but the greatest imperial power since ancient Rome, and indeed we're, we're, you know, much more extensive than ancient Rome. And um, we were, to use Salerno Yeatman's phrase, uh, regarded as being top nation. And in, uh, in 1895, the then colonial secretary, Joe Chamberlain, had been complicit in a sort of conspiracy with uh, with British white settlers on the Cape. Uh, namely, Cecil Rhodes and his friend uh, Le- Dr. Leander Starr Jameson to annex uh, the Transvaal um, and um, uh, other territories in southern Africa that were not uh, run by the British because of their enormous gold and diamond reserves. And um, the cause of starting uh, some sort of war with them was that uh, President Bota of uh, the Transvaal refused to give. Uh, basic uh, civil rights, uh, voting rights, to quite wealthy white settlers who were English, who had moved there. There was an abortive raid by Dr Jameson at the end of 1895, where he tried to uh, uh, provoke a rebellion in Transvaal. It failed. He was sent to prison. um, And others were very lucky to get away with their lives. But um, nearly four years later, the whole question of the rights of uh, British settlers in the Transvaal came up again. And um, there was sufficient provocation, uh, it was deemed, for um, Britain to start a war. Now, the, the, the Boers didn't really have an organized army. They were farmers armed with rifles. And it was believed that the British army was so incredibly superior that uh, it would finish them off in a few weeks. Um, it did um, finish them off more or less within about six or eight months after the sieges of Ladysmith and Mafeking. But there then followed a guerrilla war for two years uh, in the veld, where uh, these so called useless Boer farmers uh, were killing large numbers of, of British troops. And it took the best part of two and a half years for hostilities to end. And this caused a tremendous um, depression and sense of self examination among the, the British at home because it seemed that they weren't quite as omnipotent and as powerful and as irresistible a force as they had led themselves to believe. Um, And there was also shocking statistics that came out that so many of the young men who had volunteered to go and fight uh, for Britain in the war were medically unfit. And this was because of um, appalling uh, diet uh, that poor people in this country had towards the end of the 19th century, and also there was no real physical education. So one of the good things that happened as a result of the of the Boer War was that physical education was introduced into schools, and um, there was some attempt to monitor and improve uh, the diet of working-class people, which was just as well, because when the Great War came along 12 years later, we would have had an enormous number of men who wanted to join up to fight the Germans, who were completely unfit to do so. Um, but this caused... Um, it was the first real wave of doubt, if you like, about the second British Empire as opposed to the, the first one in the Americas, which had more or less finished in 1783. And it, I think for many people brought back memories of, of, of that period or historical memories of that period and made us realize that uh, the the uh, the lack of ease with which we eventually beat these so-called poor farmers with rifles um, was a sign that we were not the great power that we thought we were.
4: What was the popular feeling toward Empire at this time?
2: Most people were very pro-empire. Um, this was because it had been sold and in many ways accurately as uh, a means of uh, civilizing countries um, in particularly in Africa, uh, where all sorts of terrible unchristian things happened among people, um, where we were, we were exporting British values. Um, we were exporting for example, British justice, Uh, We were exporting Christianity. uh, We were exporting the British way of life, if you like. Um, And this was deemed to be a very good thing because we considered ourselves to be an advanced democracy, which in relative terms, we were. There were a few people in this country, mainly in the Liberal Party and, of course, in the nascent uh, Labour movement, which was quite small at the turn of the uh, 19th, 20th century, um, who did not believe in empire and would have liked certainly to have no more expansion and to undo quite a lot of of what had been going on. And, of course, as early as the turn of the century, um, there was a movement in India um, uh, among highly educated and civilized Indians um, who felt that they were perfectly capable of running their own country, which, of course, they were, um, and who wanted to do so and wanted to get the British out. Um, They, of course, were thwarted by many Indian uh, ruling princes, uh, who held their position with the connivance of the British, and who were aware that if the people of India took over India, um, they would have a pretty rough deal, um, or the princes would get a pretty rough deal. So um, uh, at home, it was viewed not just as a good thing that it was something, it was a service, if you like, that Britain was performing uh, for the world, um, but it was also something that was it was a very noble thing to go and serve and. Children's comics, such as The Boy's Own Paper, existed to extol the idea that going and doing some form of imperial service, whether it was uh, joining the army or the navy or even joining the imperial civil service and going to be an administrator in India or in some part of Africa, uh, or pioneering, going out to settle um, and um, expanding the idea of the British race, as it was then called in places like uh, Canada and uh, South Africa, uh, Australia and New Zealand. These are all deemed to be very good things. And we felt very good about empire, but there was always that small progressive group of politicians who were not imperialists. Um, I say most, most of them in the Liberal Party and almost everyone in the Labour movement thought imperialism was wrong. And their voices would be increasingly loudly heard after the First World War.
1: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed.
4: In the period that you examine, it's obviously a really key time in Irish history and your book considers the struggle for home rule. In the 1880s you write that it was a time of deep crisis um, and it takes us right up to the early 20th century when Ireland is on the brink of civil war.
2: Yes, um, Gladstone when he became Prime Minister for the first time in 1868 had said while chopping down a tree on his estate in Flintshire that he felt his mission was to pacify Ireland Ireland was actually reasonably Pacific during the 1860s, although it was when the first Fenian outrage took place. But by 1880, things have got very bad in Ireland, not least because the economy is, the agricultural economy is under pressure. And landlords, most of whom don't live in Ireland but have agents there working for them, are racking up the rents because they're getting a lower return from agricultural produce. And a lot of farmers can't afford to pay these rents because they're not doing very well as farmers because the climate's against them and the markets are against them. Uh, Ireland was still recovering from the potato famine, of course, and um, there were large parts of Ireland that it was very, it's very difficult to make a living. One of the most, well, the most famous aristocratic agent is a man called Captain Boycott, um, from whom we get the term to boycott, uh, and he was a land agent for a peer in. Um, County Mayo in the west of Ireland. And he was um, uh, determined to uh, carry out evictions of those who didn't pay their rents. And uh, the people, the the, the the Irish Land League, which was formed to oppose this sort of policy, uh, decided to tell its members, tenant farmers, that they were to shun boycott. And that local tradesmen were to shun him; that no one was to just sell him food or work on his estates or do anything of the sort. To send him to Coventry, but send him there in a very profound way, um, to the extent where he couldn't feed himself, as no one would sell him food. And uh, he tried to uh, take them on and failed. Uh, eventually, mercenary labour was brought in from outside the region. Uh, to to farm boycotts or to to get the harvest in, and boycotts own estates that he managed for himself. Uh, But eventually he was driven out of Ireland. And from that moment on, this is 1881, 1882, things get very militant in Ireland. And uh, there's a famous assassination of the Secretary of State for Ireland, Chief Secretary for Ireland, Lord Frederick Cavendish, in Phoenix Park in 1882 with there. His private secretary is one of the top Irish civil servants. And um, this makes Gladstone realize that the Irish will go to any lengths, including taking life, uh, in order to achieve their aims of getting the British out of Ireland. And Gladstone realizes in 1885 that he needs to try and pass a Home Rule Act, which would have been a little bit like Scottish devolution uh, is at the moment. The Irish would have run all their own affairs, apart from foreign policy and defense, which would have been run from London uh, for strategic reasons. And uh, Gladstone tried to get this through and failed. He was defeated uh, in the House of Commons. Uh, The House of Lords were always going to be difficult. The the Commons defeated him. Some of his own um, party voted against him. They became unionists. And um, the matter went away for a while because of quite coercive and repressive measures by the Conservative government that succeeded Gladstone. Uh, But again, when he came back into power, In 1892, he brought in another Home Rule Bill, which this time passed in the Commons, but was heavily defeated in the House of Lords. And then again, the issue went away, not least because the next Tory government of uh, 1895 to 1905 introduced quite a lot of land reforms uh, that allowed uh, Irish tenant farmers to buy land at uh, very good prices from their, uh, their landlords and forced the landlords to sell them. And it was a very great democratic measure and Ireland had more or less been, um, uh, not bought, but had more or less been pacified by that measure, because it allowed the Irish themselves to have a stake in their country. However, by 1910, when the Asquith government loses a general election, uh, in terms of it loses its majority, and can only govern with the help of the Irish, uh, Asquith has to promise home rule for the Irish. And the House of Lords, who pick up a fight with Asquith on Lloyd George's 1909 budget, which they defeat, find themselves um, constrained by the 1911 Parliament Act, which means they can defeat a measure twice, but they can't defeat it a third time. And by 1914, the 1912 Home Rule Act—or, sorry, Home Rule Bill has passed three times in the House of Commons, and the House of Lords have no choice but to pass it. And there is a huge debate then about how it is to be implemented, because the Protestants uh, and loyalists of uh, Ulster, and predominantly of the six counties that to this day are part of the United Kingdom, um, get extremely cross about the idea of being ruled from Dublin, and they threaten the civil war. And when we get to the brink of the Great War in the middle of July 1914, no one in Britain is looking at what's happening on the continent. They're looking at illegally armed Ulster volunteers and illegally armed nationalist volunteers in Ireland about to start killing each other, and that is only um, avoided by the fact that um, Britain goes to war with Germany. And it should be noted that a large number of the nationalist volunteers in Ireland join the British Army. I went to fight the Germans, so the Irish were the Irish didn't want to break their links with Britain. They just wanted to be part of a, if you like, of a, of a confederation in Britain, where their own domestic affairs were run by them. And unfortunately, there were a group of uh, predominantly Tory um, uh, grandees who were determined to stop it, and uh, and they made common cause with people like Sir Edward Carson, uh, the great Unionist leader in Ireland. And when we got to the, 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 the threshold of the Great War, um, there was no common ground. The king had tried to convene a conference to make everybody agree a common way forward and had failed. And it was only the fact that Britain had to deal with the Germans marching into Belgium uh, and go to the aid of the Belgians that uh, a civil war was postponed until after the Great War.
4: Something else which you write about in your book, which um, gets postponed until after the war, is the um, demand for women's suffrage. Well,
2: there have been calls for women to have the vote since the late 1860s. Um, John Stuart Mill wrote a famous uh, treatise called uh, The Subjection of Women, uh, where he talked about the outrageous illogicality of women not having the vote. And this issue was raised from time to time over the next 30 years but there was never really any great enthusiasm for it. But by the start of the 20th century, women are more and more involved in the workplace. Uh, There's this huge growth of elementary schools after the 1902 Education Act, and most of their teachers are women. Uh, Women are playing an incredibly important part in in the educational life of this country. Um, They are, of course, joining the medical profession, Um, uh, and uh, the first women doctors uh, are around in the 1890s and 1900s. Uh, And women's uh, universities, university colleges, are being established at Oxford, Cambridge in London uh, and uh, places like Royal Holloway uh, in Surrey. And it's becoming harder and harder for men to claim that women are so um, detached from the commercial and educational life of the country and are so unqualified intellectually to have a vote, uh, because that just simply isn't true. And you get to the stage where you've got um, incredibly successful, rich women uh, who don't have the vote, but the man who drives their car for them does. Uh, And this is palpably nonsense. And the Conservative Party are very much against this, because the Conservative Party at that stage is very much against any sort of change. Um, But there are even those in the Liberal Party, including Asquith himself, who becomes Prime Minister in 1908 who just think that women have no place in the political life of this country. This is despite the fact, by the way, that since 1890, when um, local government was, as we more or less know it today, was set up, women have had a vote in local government elections. Um, So they're deemed to be um, fit enough to vote in local councils or for local councils. They're completely unfit to vote uh, for uh, parliamentary representation and to choose a party of government. This is obviously a ridiculous argument on the part of those who are putting it forward. Uh, But there's a big group of women under Millicent Fawcett uh, who has been active in this since the 1870s um, and uh, an immensely reasonable, highly intelligent woman who uses argument um, and debate to try to get her point over. And she leads the suffragists. But by the middle of the Edwardian period, There's a group under Mrs. Pankhurst, who's been active in Manchester uh, with her now adult daughters since the 1890s, who say, we're never going to get these people to change their minds by reasoning with them, because they're impervious to reason. And so they start the suffragette protests, which we all remember or have seen films about. Uh, They start breaking shop windows. Um, They go um, and interfere with... Meetings that politicians give, every time someone like Lloyd George or Winston Churchill and cabinet ministers come out to make a speech anywhere in the country, they are heckled and shouted down by suffragettes, and indeed by lots of men who support the suffragettes. Interestingly, Winston Churchill is horsewhipped on a train by a man um, because he has insulted a suffragette, um, and uh, it gets more and more militant. And women get arrested, they go on hunger strike, they are hideous examples of women being force-fed in prison. Um, But the the, the harder the government come against the suffragettes, the more militant the suffragettes become. They start putting lighted things into letterboxes to burn the contents of letterboxes. They burn down Lloyd George's house in Surrey. They start burning down churches, which um, even some of their supporters are rather uh, worried about. And it is still highly militant. And uh, the protests are, are becoming more and more numerous. Again, when war breaks out, and the year before war breaks out, Emily Wilding Davison throws herself under the king's horse in the Epsom Derby. Uh, although she didn't appear to intend to kill herself, because she had a return ticket. I've seen in the uh, Women's Library and, and the London School of Economics uh, the uh, the return half of her ticket, which was not used. Um, so. Again, things are getting very militant. But Mrs. Pankhurst, who above all was a patriot, um, when war breaks out, says, "Right, the women of Britain will now serve the country," and of course they do. And by early 1918, they would even wait for victory. A bill goes through the House of Commons, giving all women over the age of 30—it went down to 21 in 1928—the vote, because the contribution that women are making to the country uh, and to its survival is completely uh, unequivocal, and the arguments. Uh, the arguments for giving women the vote have become unanswerable.
4: Although the Belle Epoque is seen as this very decadent, opulent time, um, there was much upheaval, much radical change happening um, throughout society. What was it that drew you, um, after writing about um, the Victorians in in a previous book, 1840 to 1880s, what was it that drew you particularly to this period?
2: Well, I was so wrapped up in the story when I finished my last book, which was called High Minds, which ended with um, Disraeli's defeat uh, in the 1880 general election. And although the mid-Victorian period was absolutely fascinating, uh, I knew, because of what I knew about this period, or how I researched it in detail, that it was a period of really quite tremendous upheaval, and also a period which I was aware many people misunderstood, because they have watched too many costume dramas on television about how wonderful it was to be a toff, in late Victorian and early in England. Now, don't get me wrong, it probably was pretty wonderful to be a TOF in those times, but it was pretty unwonderful to be someone at the bottom of the food chain. Now, I I mean, Julian Fellows, the creator of Downton Abbey, has said, and he's absolutely right, that many people who worked in domestic service in grand houses actually had a very nice life. They had to work hard, there's so no doubt about that, but they were looked after, they were well fed, they were sheltered, they were well clothed, they had their medical care taken care of. Um, and it was almost like an old relic of feudalism. But for a lot of working class people who didn't work in those old aristocratic establishments, those who were working for 12 hours a day in uh, a mill or a factory with people who, whose their bosses were not people with a sense of noblesse oblige, let's put it that way. They were people who'd made their own pile and were determined to, to keep it, and make it bigger. Um, those people had a pretty rough time. And it's why there was so much unrest. And it's why the labor movement grew. And I mean, one of the themes of my book is the growth of the labor movement. I mean, working men cleave naturally in the 1880s and 90s to the Liberal Party. But they realize that the Liberal Party is run by largely by quite well-to-do professional people um, and grandees, um, very similar to those found in the... Um, Conservative Party, and they don't really understand the working man. And so that's why people like Ramsay MacDonald and Keir Hardy um, become big figures in politics uh, in the years before the Great War, and why the Labour movement takes off, because um, the Labour movement. Had to stand on its own, independent of the Liberal Party, if it was ever going to pursue the agenda that many of them wanted, which was, you know, by today's standards, a very hardline left-wing agenda about, um, you know, if you like, importing a sort of socialism that was not that far removed from Marxism. Um, what's interesting is when the Labour Party does really get going, they then start to have these doctrinal arguments about just how far left they should be and. I mean, going beyond the scope of my book, but it will be in the book I'm now writing, which is the successor volume uh, to this, the Labour movement sees in 1917-18 the effects of the Russian Revolution and are terrified by it. And they want to have a democratic form of socialism, not one that ends with some sort of tyranny replacing another tyranny. So um, that really is uh, its such a great story. It's one that I didn't want to stop telling. And uh, so this book is, is the next chapter, it's the second of uh, of the three volumes, and I'm now writing a chapter on the Great War, a book, sorry, on the Great War, which will be out in a couple of years. Not a military history, but a history, a political and social history of the Great War, and how that further changed society. And then when you look really back from where my last book, High Mind, started in 1838, and go through just those 80 years to 1918-19, um, there has been... Without a revolution actually happening, a real revolution in this country. And it's the most, it's not only one of the most fascinating periods of our history, it's one of which we are the legatees. And the way that our world is configured now owes so much to that period that I think it's important we all understand what happened then.
3: That was Simon Heffer. The Age of Decadence, Britain, 1880 to 1914, is out now, published by Random House. OK, so that's about it for today, but please do join us again on Thursday when we'll be speaking to Alice Roberts about our interactions with plants and animals over the millennia.
0: Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook?